0: Gang, I want you to open your Bible to the very first book, the book of Genesis, and we're going to read from chapters 12 and 13 in just a little bit. Go to Genesis chapter 12. Uh, Today I want to open up a little mini series of sorts that will lead us up to Father's Day, and I want to talk about the subject of real men. Now I'm not sure that I can actually do this in today's day and age, our current cultural climate is so warped and so sensitive that I'm not actually sure it's legal for me to stand up here and talk about a subject like real men. Let me just ask you a question. When you think about a real man, what image comes to your mind? About 60 years ago, About 60 years ago, a man by the name of Paul Anderson, a weightlifter, powerlifter turned evangelist, started a boy's home just down the road in Vidalia, Georgia. It's called the Paul Anderson boys' home. Uh, He's been changing lives for six decades. He died back in 1994, but he was well-known worldwide for his feats of strength. In the 80s, he was on that show, the ESPN show, the the World's Strongest Man competition, where they just do all those unbelievable things. Now, Paul Anderson was a tree of a man. His biceps were enormous, impressive as they could be. His pectorals were out to here. But the thing that really got me when I was reading was he had a 28-inch neck. A 28-inch neck. Now, this is a sewing measuring tape. I borrowed it from my mother. Mine, I'm not going to tell you what mine is, but his is correct. Correct. Let me find it. His is, oh, there you go. His neck is that big right there. An imposing figure of a man. Now, I don't know what kind of image comes to mind when I use the term real man. Maybe you think of a football player. Those are certainly real men in my mind. Uh, Athletic men on the basketball court that you can fly through the air and contort their bodies in all kinds of directions. A pitcher on a baseball mound that can, can throw a baseball 100 miles an hour, that certainly would qualify. Maybe you go an entirely different direction. Maybe you think about a mountain man who lives with his family on the far reaches of survival, and civilization. He hunts for his food. He provides for his family. He protects his family. Maybe you think about a professional, successful businessman. He's standing there in a thousand dollar suit. He drives a flashy sports car. He seems to be good at everything he does. I don't know what image comes to your mind, but today we're going to talk about real men. And again, I'm not sure this subject is appropriate in our enlightened age if somehow I'm going to sound like a caveman just for using the term real man, men, but I want to talk about it because we live in a perverted upside down culture that for six decades at least has attempted to marry male and female, making them the same. According to my Bible, men and women are not the same. After six decades of blurring the roles between male and female, it's no wonder we have young people questioning their gender. My Bible teaches that an all-knowing, all-loving, intelligent God created male and female, separate but equal, distinct and with purpose. You put them together and you've really got something. I believe my granddad was a real man. My granddad lived with us when I was a teenager. He had been a coal miner for years when my child was growing up in West Virginia, when my dad was growing up as a child in West Virginia. And my grandfather was a coal miner until the mine collapsed and it crushed him. My father was 10 years old And he said, I'll never forget watching them load my father's hospital bed onto a train. They're in a small coal mining town. And he rode that train several hours to Washington, D.C., to a big fancy hospital. And for 10 months, he endured therapy and tried to heal. Now, this is back in the day when communication wasn't as easy as it is today So for 10 solid months, my grandfather's family waited hundreds of miles away for word on his recovery. They assumed he would never walk again. In fact, when they loaded him on the train, they weren't sure he was going to make the ride to Washington, D.C. Sure enough, 10 months later, my grandmother received a telegram. It said, your husband is coming home. So she grabbed her three little boys, and they ran to the train station. And my father said, I was 10 years old, and I'll never forget it. It was the happiest day of my life. We expected him to come off that train in a wheelchair. But there he stood, by himself and on his own, walking with a cane. He made his way down the stairs of the train and down the platform to his waiting family. My grandfather had some pretty funny expressions. He used to say to me, Hoss, that's what he called me, he called me Hoss. Hoss, he said, your granny believes that men only have two faults, only two faults with most men, everything we say and everything we do. (laughs) He used to say, nothing ages a man faster than trying to prove that he's still a young one. And I can speak to that from experience. Every man has a secret ambition to outsmart fish and women he used to say. And he would say, most men brag about their hunting and shooting exploits, but truthfully, we're best at shooting pool, shooting our mouths off, and shooting bull. There's a book that's been written called The Male Paradox. And in this book, the author tries to convince men that our greatest struggle in today's world is the back and forth notion between our Male, masculine, aggressive side and our female, sensitive, enlightened side. As if this is truly the biggest struggle for men today between our female, feminine, enlightened side and our male, masculine, aggressive side. You know what my grandpa would call that, don't you? It starts with bull. For the next couple of weeks leading up to Father's Day, I want to address the men primarily at Grace Community Church. I know it may seem a little sexist, I know it may seem a little traditional, but I personally believe there has never been a greater need in my lifetime for men to be men in our culture. That doesn't mean we're toxic, it doesn't mean we're overly aggressive, it doesn't mean we're dictators in our home, it means we're men of faith, like Abram. Real men, men of faith in our culture are scarce in my opinion. So I want to challenge you, the men of grace, to become men of faith for the next few weeks. Let's talk about Abraham. The year is 2165 BC. That's a very, very long time ago. In a very ancient and primitive culture, there was a man who lived by the name of Abram. And Abram was called of God to leave his homeland behind and go to a land that God would show him. Being the man of faith that he was, that's exactly what he did. Now his journey had struggles along the way. There were problems, but he made it. And I want to talk about him today. Now I'm going to read a lot more text than I normally do, uh, but I want you to hear this story. It comes from Genesis twelve and Genesis thirteen. Read with me beginning in verse one of Genesis chapter twelve. The Lord had said to Abram, "Now we know him as Abraham. Later God would change his name to Abraham, but for now he's Abram. The Lord had said to Abram, "Go from your country." Now, stop and think about that for a second. That is an enormous ask. What if God asked you to leave this country? That is a very big deal. Don't miss it. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. This is commonly referred to as the calling of Abraham. Abraham would become the father of God's chosen people, Israel. Verse 2. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That is a reference to the coming Jesus Christ, the coming Savior, the coming Messiah. Because you see, if there had never been an Abraham, there would never have been a Jewish people. And had there never been a Jewish people, We would never have their history. And if we never had their history, we'd never have the Bible. And if we didn't have the Bible, we'd never have recognized Jesus as Messiah. And if we didn't have Jesus, there'd be no hope. Keep reading. Verse 4, so Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Lot was his nephew. The two men were in business together. They were livestock owners, ranchers, herders, that sort of thing. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife, Sarai. Later, her name is changed to Sarah. His nephew, Lot, all their possessions that they had accumulated and all the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. The land of Canaan sound familiar to you? 700 years later, the land of Canaan would be known as the promised land. So follow me. God calls Abram, a man of faith, a man who revered his creator. Abram, come, follow me. I'm going to take you to a place you've never been. 600 miles later, he's in the land of Canaan. 700 years after that, Moses would lead God's nation from Abraham to the promised land. And Joshua, Joshua would actually possess it. Verse number. Skip down to verse 10. Now, there was a famine in that land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was so severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Stop. Men, I cannot overemphasize the importance of telling your wife how beautiful she is. No matter how long you've been married, No matter what you've experienced together, it is so important for a husband to tell his wife, sweetheart, you are beautiful. You are special. You are important. I'm a very lucky man. Abraham knew how important this was. Sarai, I know that you're a beautiful woman. Verse 12, when the Egyptians see you, they're going to say, this is his wife. Then they'll kill me, but they'll let you live. Now, the reason Abram felt this way is because part of Haranian culture from the land of Haran, where Abram was from, sisters were deemed more valuable, more important in society than wives. The thinking was, a sister is a father's daughter, a wife is merely a husband's companion. So Abram concocts a plan to save his own hide. When we go into Egypt, you're going to tell him that you're my sister. He goes on. Uh, End of verse 12, say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and your life will be spared or my life will be spared because of you. Say you are my sister. Again, in this primitive ancient culture, the sister was more valuable than his wife. So to save his own skin, this is the plan he concocts, but he didn't think it through. Watch verse 14. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. Verse 16, he treated Abram well for her sake. Abram acquired sheep, cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. Let me be very clear what's going on here. Abram, this great man of faith, this father of the Jewish nation, This hero to many of us today is pimping his wife. It's shocking to me simply for the reason that Abram did what we do so very often. He exchanged the devil he knew with the devil he did not know. He exchanged one problem that he knew was very acquainted with, starvation, a famine in the land, the economy was collapsing, with another problem his life is in danger. Sarah's life is in danger. She's going to be taken by the king or the Pharaoh, and we so often do the same. When the darkness of difficulty surrounds our circumstance, so often we, we kind of pull up the, ta- the, the stakes to our tent. We, we collapse into the darkness, and we run a different direction. But what we're doing is we're simply exchanging a known problem for an unknown problem, and that got Abraham even in more trouble. Verse 16 again, he treated Abram well for her sake. Abram acquired sheep and cattle, donkeys, servants, and camels. I'll tell you something else that that shows me. Even when you are out of the Father's plan, as as an intentional follower of Jesus Christ, even when I go against his principle, even when I stray from the way, God is still involved in that process. God did not abandon Abram for this one poor decision. Keep reading verse 17. But the Lord inflicted serious disease on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram, Abram's wife Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said. Why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife? Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men. They sent him on his way and his, with his wife and everything that he had. Skip down to verse 1 of chapter 13. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev. The Negev is a vast desert region in southern Israel. It still exists today. You can go there. With his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and silver and in gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Okay, follow me. Abram's in Haran. God calls him, takes him to a land 600 miles away. Abram sets up tent. He builds an altar. He makes sacrifice. He worships. He fears for his life. He runs to Egypt. The plan in Egypt collapses and falls all apart. He runs back and continues to search until he finds that same place, the place where the altar was. His tent is still standing. And what does he do? He worships. He confesses. He called on the name of the Lord. Keep reading. Verse number five. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land could not support them while they stayed together. So there's not enough green and there's too many animals, not enough water and there's too many animals, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. Verse 7, quarreling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's. The Canaanites and the parasites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me between your herders and mine, for we're close relatives. Now watch verse 9. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Verse 9 marks the beginning of Abraham, the beginning for Abraham and his momentum, and it marks the beginning of the end for Lot, if you know the story. Real men who follow Christ, in my opinion, are becoming more and more difficult to find. And I personally believe there are many, many loving, God-fearing women who want to become loving supporters, encouragers, helpers to their husbands if only they could find a real man of faith to love them. Notice a few things from this story about Abraham's faith. The first thing that it seems obvious to me is Abraham was a man of faith and his faith overcame his failure. His faith overcame his failure. Chapter 12, verse 10 and following. In 10 short verses, the Bible says a whole lot. From chapter 12, verse 10 to verse 20, Abraham goes from this man of faith, this revered man of integrity to this man of fear. As the economy is crumbling, as the stock market is plummeting, Abram starts to panic. And rather than stay put, stay where God had led him, rather than trust God in the moment, in the difficult circumstance, Abram, as I said, exchanged one demon that he knew for another that he did not know. He retreats to Egypt and he trusts Pharaoh, he trusts the pagans for survival. He did this because he feared for his own life and he feared for his wife Sarah, not necessarily in that order. There was a young minister who started his ministry career and he poured every bit of himself into his work, but nothing went his way. He worked hard, very hard, long hours, but the church never grew. In fact, the church split. He began to doubt himself, he began to doubt his ability. He began to Doubt the calling that God had placed upon his life. He had been a Marine, and he was comfortable in the Marines. He began to wonder whether he should have stayed with the Marine Corps. But he took hold of what little faith he had. He held on, and he pursued a church in Fullerton, California. And I am so glad and thankful and happy that he did. He would not let his failure, professional or otherwise, hold him back, because his faith took him to that church. And if he hadn't, the whole world would never have benefited from my favorite pastor and Bible teacher, Dr. Chuck Swindoll. Maybe you've heard him on the radio. That's what faith does, that's what faith is. After Pharaoh kicks them out, Abram realizes his failure and he made sure it didn't wreck his faith. That's why in chapter 13, verse 4, he goes right back to the altar again, makes sacrifice and called on the name of the Lord. I have a fear for men in the 21st century. Nearly every week, I seem to be reminded that many of today's men have lost their ability to exercise faith. I didn't say you don't believe in something, I know you believe in certain things, we can talk about those beliefs, but I'm talking about exercising your faith, acting on what you believe, the kind of faith that's necessary to push through a difficult circumstance, the kind of faith in God that makes a man believe he can put his family on his back and walk through the fire, the kind of faith necessary to keep a man from abandoning his family. The kind of faith necessary that makes men show up in church and men light up their community. You see, my fear is that we often talk about our beliefs, but we rarely act on them. We react instead to our surroundings. Abram's faith wasn't like that. His faith overcame his failure. So men, hear me. No matter how many times you failed... No matter when and how often you said what you promised you'd never say before or again, no matter how many times you've committed to never doing it again, my challenge to you today is get up, get up. Claim that prayer of forgiveness. 1 John 1 verse 9. If we confess our sin, God is faithful and just. He'll forgive us of our sin and he'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's the beauty of following Christ as a man. When I fall, when you fall, every day is a brand new day. Every day is a brand new day to start again. There is no other world religion that teaches a new beginning Like Christianity. Abraham knew all about it. His failure was not going to overcome his faith. Number two, his faith was also unaffected by affluence. Abraham's faith was unaffected by affluence. And to me, as I look at culture, that's pretty rare. Remember, Abraham had a lot of stuff before God ever called him. Once he leaves Egypt, he's got even more. He left Egypt a very wealthy man because of Pharaoh's lavish gifts. But notice that Abram's wealth, it didn't quench his hunger for God. It didn't quench his intentionality when it came to faith. Jesus said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. You ever try to thread a needle? It's almost impossible for me. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of that needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why is that? Because men, men especially crave success. Men want to win. That's why we compete at everything. Men want to be better than someone else. And how better do we gauge our winning? How better do we measure our wins than by how much money we make, how much stuff we have, how successful we are, Abraham didn't care about those things. Oh, I'm not going to say he didn't care, but he didn't care first. Abram's faith was not affected by his affluence. John Galbraith wrote, Money ranks right up there with love as man's greatest source of joy. Sadly, however, money ranks right up there with death as man's greatest source of anxiety. I came across an article that was pretty interesting. It was called, The Day America Told the Truth. The question was posed to thousands of responders on this survey, what would you do for $10 million? Now, that's a great lunch subject right there. What would you do for $10 million? You might find the answers a little puzzling. One out of four men who responded, that's 25%, would abandon their entire family for $10 million. 23 million or 23% that's almost one out of four, of men say they would become a male prostitute for a week. 26 percent, again, one in four, would leave their spouse and dissolve their marriage. And three percent would put their children up for for adoption. Hmm. Tyler just spent a week with about 30 of your kids. I'm sure he's ready to put some of your kids up for adoption as well. There was a man arrested several years ago in the riots of Ferguson for stealing a TV. He broke out a big window and he stole a television. And the reason this story is so ironic is because just three years prior to that, this man pocketed over $13 million because he won the state lottery. Three years later, he's broke. A woman by the name of Kathleen Peasy. she was a restaurant hostess in Connecticut. She did a scratch-off ticket one day and won $3.2 million. And sadly, five short years later, she appeared in a Palm Beach bankruptcy court. She had nothing. I bring this to your attention because so many of us, especially men, live as though money is the answer to all of our problems. Money solves everything. With more money comes more opportunity. With more money comes more success and happiness. I could line the men up on this stage over my years of ministry who would tell you otherwise. I have asked countless men in the past who were working at the expense of their family. They were working at the expense of the respect from their children. They were building a business at the expense of their home. Hey, buddy, what's a what's million dollars when you're 50 if you've lost your family in the process? What good's a million dollars when you're 50 if you've lost the respect of your children? What's a million dollars when you're 50 if you've lost your faith? That didn't happen to Abram because Abram's faith was not affected by how much money he had. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, Paul wrote, It's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. Note, note, people get this wrong all the time. It's not money that's evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Is God against money and material possessions? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. In fact, some of the most God-fearing, exalted human beings in this Bible were also the most wealthy. It seems to me that the reason God gave Abram more, God never scolded Abram for his success. He never scolded Abram for building wealth. It appears to me that the reason God gave him even more was because God knew it wasn't going to affect and impact his faith. Here's number three. Abram's faith helped him make the tough choices. Abram's faith helped him make the tough choices. For as far back as man has recorded history, there have been disagreements, arguments over land boundaries and property. That's what was happening with Abram and Lot. They were partners. They had a successful venture together, but their business was outgrowing their location. Now, If I'm in those shoes and many of you are in those shoes, sadly, do you know what we do first? We test the winds of popular culture. What's the best decision for me, my business, my future? We do the research. We study the analytics. We might even hire an outside firm to help us decide. And we decide based upon our good for our future and our fortune. Abraham didn't do that. Did you notice verses 8 and 9? Here's all Abram did. Lot, that's a big country out there. If you go left, I'm going to go right. And if you go right, I'm going to go left. Wouldn't you like to make critical decisions in such a casual way? How could Abram be so casual about his future, the future of his company, the future of his business, the future of his fortune? How could he be so casual? Because that wasn't what mattered most to him. Abram knew that his faith in God, the God of the process, the God of providence, is what mattered most. Someone has said, even the right decision becomes the wrong decision if it's made too late. Abram knew he had to do something, and the time to act was now. John Maxwell is the leadership guru guru of my adult lifetime. For 40 years, I've been reading his books. One of those books is about making tough decisions. In it, he gives us a list. He said, when real men make tough decisions, number one, they pray or else they're going to pay. You pray or you pay. The first thing that a real man does when he has to make a tough choice is he prays. Failure to consult God in the process was unthinkable to a man like Abram. That's why he called on the name of the Lord. Number two, he says you organize or you agonize. Maxwell writes, and I quote, A life in which anything goes will ultimately be a life in which nothing goes. Oh, men, I have seen this so many times. A life in which anything goes. Say yes to everything. There are men who believe their sole and first responsibility in this life is to make so much money, acquire so much wealth, that they can tell their family yes on everything. That is not your number one responsibility before God. And I'm not talking about organizing your garage. I'm talking about organizing your life by establishing boundaries. I will do this, but I will not do that. I will go here, but I will not go there. I will say this, but I will not say that. Establishing priorities that help us decide. In fact, priorities is number three. Prioritize or sterilize. You see, a real man of faith knows a failure to prioritize his life is a prescription for failure. Real men make the tough choice because their faith has already helped them prioritize their life. And then number four, you choose or you lose. You choose or you lose because when the circumstance goes dark and you're in a tight spot and you've got to decide, either you become an initiator or you become a reactor. Real men of faith take what faith they have and they hold on to it. They make a decision and then through sheer determination and faith, they ride it out. The others, they stand around, wait, scratching their head, and wind up reacting to a choice someone else has made. And finally, number five, you evaluate or you stalemate. You evaluate past decisions and then you learn from them. That's who Abraham was. Abraham was not about to allow his failure to overcome his faith. He was not about to bury his faith in light of his newly found affluence. And finally, Abraham was certainly willing to make the tough choice choice all because of his faith. I'm sure you've heard of the legendary Hall of Fame football coach Newt Rockne, right? Legendary coach of the Notre Dame Fighting Irish. This man's in the Hall of Fame, everybody knows the story. Coach Rockney faced an imposing opponent one fall Saturday morning in South Bend. USC Trojans were coming to town. And Coach Rockney knew that the Trojans were better than his fighting Irish in all three phases of the game offensively, defensively, special teams. So, in order to gain a psychological advantage, he spent two months prior to the game walking the streets of South Bend, Indiana. He was looking for the biggest men he could find. The men had to be six feet five or taller. Now, I'm six foot four, so taller than me, and 300 pounds or better. When he found 100 of these behemoths, he committed them to game time on that particular Saturday morning. They gathered in the locker room. They were meat packers and auto mechanics. There were school teachers. There were all kinds of men from all walks of life, and he dressed them in the Notre Dame uniforms. When you put the shoulder pads and the helmets on these giant guys, they looked even more imposing. Just a few minutes before game time, rather than the team running out together as they so often do, these men marched in single file, quiet determination on their face, straight down the center uh, line of the football field right at the USC Trojans. The Trojans being 18, 19, some 20-year-old young kids, their mouths just gaped open. They couldn't believe what they were seeing. Every man that marched onto the field was bigger than the one that preceded him. The coach for USC realized what was happening. He started running around to his team and promising them, they can only play 11 of those guys at one time. They can only play 11 of those guys at one time. But it was too late. The damage was already done. The good part of that story is, even though not one of those 100 men played one minute in that football game, Notre Dame beat the USC Trojans in a big upset. All because young men had been intimidated by their opponent. Now, men, here's my challenge, and we'll quit. I believe, as sure as I'm standing here, that men in this audience, men who had families at Grace, men who've just started out in marriage with a wife, We face an imposing, intimidating, often, opponent. But men of faith, men of faith are not intimidated. Men of faith stand in their home. They stand in their churches. They stand in their communities. They light the darkness. And that's what I'm challenging you to become. Let's pray. Father, I'm looking at men in this audience that I so deeply respect. Father, I thank you for the men at Grace who are indeed lights in their community, leaders in their home, lovers in their marriage. Father, I pray that you would rise more of them up and up and up in this place. Use this church and these men to bring light into a darkened community. No matter how intimidating or how opposing the opponent seems to be, God, make us men of faith like Abraham, and I pray you do it soon. I pray it because of Christ in his name. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. I hope you make it a great week. I will see you next time.